Today's episode features Elliot Roman, who is a great friend of mine and is a composer, pianist, and flutist extraordinaire. For starters, he did me the great honor and favor of producing this podcast's theme song, as he made my little trumpet lick come to life, so thank you so, so much for that. We talked about his lifelong pursuit of music, overcoming doubts, and our shared time in the New York Youth Symphony. He then breaks down his composition process and walks us through his most recent work that was debuted by the American String Quartet. We end on the importance of premiering new works, which ensures classical music's longevity as a living and breathing and evolving art form. Hope you enjoy! Roman. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Hey, Elliot. Yay. So glad you're here. Um, I wanted to kind of jump right in and talk about your musical origin story and basically just how, how this all happened. Sure. So I grew up in the New York area and actually lived right next to Lincoln Center when I was a very little kid. So I was always really close to the uh, music scene uh, when I was a young child and my parents are musicians um, and we always had music going on in our house. Um, so I started playing piano at around two or three. Yeah. <laughs> um, after I remember we saw the first or second Harry Potter film. One of them came out around that time um, when I was like two or three, believe it or not. Um, and uh, I remember hearing the music from the film and enjoying it so much that I started to noodle around on the piano uh, and try to you know, figure out uh, what was going on musically. Um, and my mom, who was really smart to do this, uh, she said, oh, we need to get this kid piano lessons if he's improvising at, you know, three years old. <laughs> so uh, I started playing piano then and been playing piano ever since. And I've picked up some other instruments uh, along the way. So at one point I was playing some guitar. Um, and, you know, at, at the time, like we, we had moved out to New Jersey um, and I had started a, a different school and whatnot. And I was supposed to be in band. And uh, yeah, at one point I played some oboe, some saxophone, didn't really work for me, but flute, ended up kind of resonating with me. Um, so I, I started that in like middle school um, and I had been interested in composing this whole time, uh, but never really got into it. I don't know why, I think I just was busy with piano and busy with other things um, until I was in fifth grade. Um, I had just started at a new school and the school had, uh, had a very fascinating program uh, for their fifth grade class, where um, instead of music classes, the entire grade would collaborate on uh, creating an original opera um, from scratch. So every student would have a different job. You'd have to apply for the job. Um, and so this was anything from writing the lines and the lyrics to the music, uh, writing the music itself, uh, making sets, PR, 
um, and every student had their own job. And it was fascinating not only to get you know exposure to creating something inherently artistic um, with other people, but it, it was also interesting to see what happened to those students down the road. Um, but anyway, so I was, uh, I was one of the composers. Uh, I love the idea of like a 10 year old writing music and another 10 year old doing PR. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah, and we actually, we, we made it onto uh, New York One. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. It got, it got good advertising, but that was a great um, PR. my first, one of my first exposures to composing. And I was working with two other uh, students on that project. And then I ended up doing a couple other, um, a couple other scoring projects when I was in middle school. Um, the next one was with one of the other two composers uh, from that fifth grade opera. And then another was just by myself. Um, and by that time I was in early high school and, uh, and I, I knew that I wanted to really dive deeper into composing more formally, more seriously. Um, so I did a couple summer festivals and I started studying with a, a private teacher. And um, at the same time, I was doing the pre-college at Manhattan School of Music um, where I was studying piano, but not composition. Um, I was doing some composition electives, but um, it was actually, I was later in high school uh, when I got really, really into composing um, where it felt like it was what I really needed to study in undergrad and now graduate, I guess. <laughs> it sounds like you found out that music was your calling from a super young age. Absolutely. I mean, how do you, it, how do you like concentrate and get through normal school since you went to like a normal public school? Yeah. I mean, I didn't even, it didn't feel like a choice to pursue music. Mm. It was more of something, you know, sometimes people will ask me, Oh, uh, how did you decide to become a musician? It's like, how do you decide how to brush your teeth in the morning? I mean, it's something that's so, you know, mind like you. It's not something I actively think about. It's just something I've been doing my whole life. Right. But yeah, I guess it was always a little bit difficult in to interact in, you know, quote unquote regular school. Yeah. Uh, because you know, not many other people were doing what I was doing and. Uh, were interested in what I was doing and I mean many of the other people in my school respected you know my my dreams and my goals and what I was up to but they didn't fully understand it yeah so, which is why it's so magical that first time you go to like a summer festival or you start going to pre-college and everyone's like-minded and you're like oh my god there are other people with like the same goals and dreams those programs are so important I mean it's hard for musicians to be social, <laughs> um, especially pianists and composers. You know, yeah. We spend most of our time alone. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, craft, but. That's a good point. I think trumpet is nice because you get some of that individual time when you're practicing, but you also can't practice forever the way you kind of can 
on piano every day. You can spend like 10 hours at the piano if you were that motivated or um, you can just spend infinite hours composing as I'm sure you know, but trumpet, like you play for two hours and you're like, okay, like that's all my face can handle for the day. Let's go to rehearsal and like hang out. Right. Not really the same thing when you're a soloist or. I would be worried if one were practicing piano for 10 hours. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean? Like technically you can just play and play and play. And for trumpet, you truly cannot. Um, yeah, that's a good point. It's like meeting a bunch of other composers who are down to kind of hang out and chat is, is pretty special and doesn't Absolutely. happen every day. Um, I also wanted to just kind of talk about like bumps in the road and it's, it's like, you can still kind of know that this is like your passion and your calling, but there are still moments of doubt. You're still going to be pursuing music, which is like not easy. And I even just remember like last year kind of waiting for things to shake out with like grad school and stuff. You just being like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a totally normal feeling to have. Like we're all kind of in this like college post undergrad kind of like transitional phase, which I think is so confusing for all of us. But I think it was really stark, like as a friend and as someone who knows you and is like made music with you and like knows that it's something that you love and have like pursued your entire life. Like he, seeing you question it was just like mind boggling for me. Um, but also totally makes sense. I don't know if you're down to like walk us through that or even just like moments of doubt along the road, even knowing that it's something that you love and want to pursue. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to have those doubts. It's really hard. It doesn't matter where you are in your career, you know, how far along you are. Um, if you don't have doubts, I, I, I'm genuinely concerned for you. <laughs> um, but Fair. yeah, I think what kind of got me grounded uh, after having those concerns was the fact that I had spent my whole life doing it. You know, I actually, I had a conversation with uh, a longtime uh, mentor of mine uh, and he's also a musician, uh, you know, he gigs professionally in the city. And uh, I told him, you know, I was thinking of doing these other things and you know, I'm not, not sure if I want to do, uh, you know, pro music performance professionally or I might look into all these other things, keep my options open. And he said, Elliot, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've spent yeah. your entire life working hard to get where you are now and to continue to, you know, move forward in your musical career. Uh, you're just going to give this up and do something completely unrelated or um, somewhat related that is not, might not be as fulfilling. And that that's what really, I guess, changed my outlook on the whole thing. And all those doubts went away. Um, he said, uh, work not for the fruits of your labor, but for the work itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you pushed through, obviously, because like so much cool stuff is now happening for you. I'm glad too. <laughs> yeah, so many things are happening. Um, I think this also like leads to a conversation that we've had a couple times about also just like how fucked up conservatories and music schools are and how they just kind of like lead to burnout and so many people in them are just like miserable and questioning themselves, but they're also on such a specified path. So at the end of those four years, you're like, what am I doing? 
am I going to do more school? Am I going to take like auditions? Am I super burned out and want to do something like completely different? But like, I am pretty specialized in what I do right now. They're also just for-profit institutions and like lure in like little band geeks and they're like, want to be a musician and it's just hard and it's cutthroat and there are so few jobs, but so many music majors and it's like, it's just hard to reconcile with. But then there are also people who want to genuinely pursue it. And who am I to say that people um, shouldn't all experience music and love it and pursue it and enjoy it if they want to. So it's just like complicated, but I just see so many people kind of burned out and questioning themselves when they're, when they initially kind of went into it out of like very pure joy and passion. Yeah, I think um, along the lines of this conservatory dilemma, I think that a young, like if I were to have advice for a young musician that's considering conservatory or is about to go to a conservatory, I would probably say, you know, your, your only expectation should be that you get, you know, a solid musical education from the school, uh, that you're there to hone your craft, to practice, uh, I mean, most of our learning comes from our practice um, and to get out of it what you put into it. And I think people go into conservatories with the kind of fantasy that the conservatory will get them places. And to a certain extent, that might be true. You know, the, like the reputation of the school and the networking, um, but also that mu must be done on the student's end. They have to make an effort to be nice to people, to um, hand out their business card and have their elevator pitch. Yeah. Uh, you know, Did they teach that in conservatory though? Or is that something you've just kind of had to like learn along the way and like gigging musicians have kind of told you? Well, it's not something that's actively taught, but if you're not nice to people, nobody's gonna hire you for gigs, so. Yeah. I also just kind of had one foot in, one foot out because like I took lessons at Juilliard, but obviously wasn't a part of the studio, didn't really go there. So I just kind of like would peer in and then kind of be like, whoa. So it's kind of weird kind of having a foot out, but also being able to peer in and like have conversations with friends at conservatories and like, yeah, I don't know. It just seems from the outside that I would kind of hope that they would teach you guys more useful, like on the job skills and yeah, I don't know. I think these are all just important things. And now that I'm on tour, like I've been learning so much about the industry firsthand, about like unions and about, yeah, expectations and how to really play in a section and like be professional and handle situations. And but maybe that isn't the role of a conservatory, but a part of me just feels like maybe it should be if that's the ultimate goal is to get a job doing music. I mean, I can't speak for all conservatories. I don't know what some other schools are doing, but I think it should be stressed a little bit more. Yeah, I think a lot of learning comes from the job though, that like there are things that can't really be taught in schools. There are certain skills that you have to pick up along the way. It's like street smarts, yeah. <laughs> can't really teach that in, in schools, so. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the earlier the better, which I feel like you probably picked up. Well, one of the things I think is really cool that you do is like you're involved in so many projects with so many people like, in Manhattan School of Music, like on your own outside projects. Like I'm sure you've learned a lot from all the work that you do since it's so varied. Yeah, I think each job, so I do, I've been doing a number 
number of jobs recently, and actually most of them have been like collaborative piano with choir. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll be conducting a group. Sometimes I'll be playing piano or flute in a group. Sometimes I'll be like putting my composer hat on and working with an ensemble that's going to work workshop or premiere my piece or something. And so I think each each experience is so different that it, it kind of shapes how you go about doing your other jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or even, you know, singing in a choir, you would never think that, I mean, not never, but <laughs> you wouldn't expect that that would help with, I don't know, playing flute in an orchestra, but right. sure enough, it does. I mean, there are so many overlapping uh, ideas and, and concepts in all of these jobs. Do you enjoy that variety in like all your performance and music directing and composition projects? Oh, absolutely. I feel like I would get bored if I didn't have the variety. Yeah, keeps things interesting. Um, on your feet, you know. <laughs> well, I kind of wanted to talk about that too, because not only do you play flute, but you are a very, very good flute player and you are good enough at piano to like double major at it in school with composing. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's really cool that you just are able to kind of have these side hustles, but they're not just side hustles. They're like very real pursuits that like give you a lot of joy and experiences. Um, and also just getting a little nostalgic because we met because of New York youth and like your flute playing brought us together. Um, and I just wanted to share, I thought it was so funny. I was like thinking about just like conversation points and things to bring up. And I literally like for, for the audience out there, um, we met, the first week of college um, at the craft center and which is like the Hillel uh, student center at Columbia, but Elliot notoriously became like more involved in like Hillel and Columbia student life than like literally any Columbia student. But I just showed up because I was like, okay, like, let me check out what Hillel is. And they had a roller skating and cookie dough kind of like bash, like, and, um, I like met you and I basically that day was like riding a little ego high because I had auditioned for New York Youth Symphony and like heard on the spot that I was going to get in. So I was feeling like very good about myself. Um, And you like asked me about like what I do. And I was like, oh yeah, like I play trumpet. Like I'm going to be in the New York Youth Symphony, New York Youth Symphony, no big deal. And you were like, oh, I just auditioned for that. And then of course you also got in and then we immediately became like fast friends at our retreat in the, um, racist Long Island woods um but it was like so funny because I was just feeling like oh like let me show this conservatory boy like I too am a musician and you're like I'll see you there but I'm very grateful that you play the flute and that we were able to make a lot of music together for two years and it what was so fun about that was that you and I had become great friends outside of our time playing uh you know get pizza before and or after every single New York youth rehearsal. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by two bros pizza. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, we would, we would socialize outside of it that when we were actually playing in New York youth, I felt like you and I could communicate uh, musically because we knew each other, because we knew each other's playing. And um, at least I, I thought, that maybe you didn't but I don't know I think well we were both also like in the section and I think it was like such a big year of like learning and playing in a serious orchestra and just playing unbelievable rep like opening 
our first concert in Carnegie Hall, which was so magical. Um, well, we played Rock 2. It was one of the... Yeah, Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, for all you laymen out there uh, who don't know the cool kid classical music slang. Um, it was magical. The orchestra was so strong. We played in the most incredible hall in the world. We also played the shit out of it. Like, it was incredible. Yeah, there's a great recording of it, actually, on SoundCloud. Which really? I came across. Yes, I came across this recording on SoundCloud uh, like a couple of months ago. Uh, it's of the third movement of our Rachmaninoff performance at Carnegie Hall. Um, and I had thought that we would never be able to hear it without going to the New York Youth Symphony office because of all these, you know, recording permission. Yeah, that's the biggest problem, all the copyright things that Carnegie Hall basically just owns all of our recordings. But I guess they made an agreement and it's up on SoundCloud now. And I listened to that so many times. <laughs> so good. You just have to wait a hundred years or whatever for it to get into the public domain. I don't know how that works for Carnegie, but you know, hopefully one day. It, it was always fun kind of harassing Mike to like play us back like Shasti 5 or Rock 2 or whatever, because he was the only one who had access. We were on, we were on um, the bus and on tour. Yeah, and exactly. Do you have any do you have any favorite memories for a second to get nostalgic? From the Spain tour or from, from all of it. I mean Spain tour was definitely a highlight for me. It was so fun. Great. I loved playing in a bull ring. I think that was so cool and so unique. That was definitely a once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be playing in a bull ring ever again, but that was, so, that was such a cool experience. And I remember it was so hot in Spain when we were there. Yeah. That when we were rehearsing in the afternoon, it was, you know, oppressive heat. Um, yeah. But then once the sun went down, it cooled down and audience started to to show up I think it was sold out but I remember seeing people in the building like the apartment building outside of this bull ring like on the balcony listening to us and you know just thinking like I'm playing to them just like I'm playing to the people in uh in the audience here just like I'm playing with all of my peers and colleagues around me and it was just such a great experience like we were all yeah. just having fun yeah it was a lot of fun I remember that day um because i think the night before or the previous concert um we had one encore prepared and it was bizet's carmen and there was a big trumpet solo in it and i was just like here we go every time but then we were in seville and they wanted an encore but we like so we played the encore but then they wanted another encore and we didn't have a second encore so we just played it again and i was like oh no they already know what the trumpet solo sounds like so i have to play it exactly the same um, and luckily it went, it went fine, but Mike was like, hmm, you should probably prepare a second encore. So I remember in the bull ring, we were doing our dress rehearsal and he just put Capriccio Espanol on our music stands and was like, let's just run this and like have it in our arsenal so we can play it whenever. But that tour was so great. We, I really just felt like such a rock star and I feel like we all did because the crowds there were so enthusiastic and having local kids from Spain join us on tour too was so great. Like we're still in touch with them. Yeah, it was amazing. I think for me, that was a big um, period of doubt. There have been a lot of periods of doubt for me with music, but that was a big one where I was just like, 
what am I doing? Do I quit? Do I join back again in the fall? Um, and I think that tour really just like revived the pure joy and kind of knowing that it's, it's not just about playing your instrument. It's about like making really great lifelong friends and traveling the world and sharing with people. And it really is such a universal language. So that was a great moment for me, but I really also just loved the hangs. I loved our pizza runs. I loved our subways back up on the one. Oh, yeah. Um, I loved all of it. Yeah, it was great all around. Yeah. I felt so spoiled, actually, like going down to the Domena Center and rehearsing there every week. And yeah, it, you know, it was just, it was so great. All the other players are amazing. Mike Rapper was amazing to work with. Um, everybody who worked in New York Youth Symphony was fabulous. Um, just all around a great experience, great learning experience. And I feel like, you know, I played um, like second flute for the majority of what we were doing there. And if you want to get better at your instrument, play second, uh, you know, second flute. Um, yeah. And you'll learn to blend, you'll learn to be in tune. Oh my God, there's so much to learn in a section. That's what I'm experiencing this year, like playing second trumpet on tour. Mm-hmm. There is so much to learn. It is a completely different animal than playing principal. It's learning. I actually have to like use my ears for the first time in my life. When you're first trumpet, you just don't, you tune everyone out and you're like, I'm just going to hit the high note um, and people are going to have to listen up to me. But truly listening up to someone and copying style to the T, um, intonation, really, really thinking about it and really just gelling with someone else. It's like an incredible skill set and an incredibly important skill set. Yeah. Listen three dimensionally. Totally. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk more about like your composing. Um, Are you down to walk us through somewhat through, through the process of all of it? Process. Well, the way that I generally approach composing is I have an idea and this idea is something that's usually inspired by it's often not usually but often inspired by uh, two non-musical sources that are in some way connected and it's the connection itself and not necessarily the sources but rather the connection that feeds my musical inspiration and so once I have this idea then I usually let it sit. Like I don't rush to write notes down. Um, I let it sit. I, you know, think about it for a period of time, and this could be even months. Um, and then I'll sit down and I'll write the piece in a very short period of time because I had been thinking it over, and mm. um, you know, ideas may have come to me before I started writing any notes down. And then I'll write the piece. I might do the the same thing. So I'll write it and uh, I'll let it sit for a bit and then I'll come back to it even months later and listen to it with fresh ears and edit it accordingly. But as far as the material goes, I work generally as I'll have a very little bit of material that I like to explore. Um, And I guess the same can be said about many other composers, but um, I like to have my material relate in every way possible to that inspiration and that the piece is in some way as, you know, servant to the inspiration. And like, in some way I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, a servant to the the concept that like Mm. we composers are just a a means of translation. 
I mean, I could share a little bit about a recent piece that I wrote. I yeah, I would love that. I know just to like kind of break it down, something I'm trying to do um, and kind of use this platform for a little bit is to try to make music and classical music a little bit more like palatable for mm-hmm. non-musicians. So yeah, if you're down to like maybe pick a piece you worked on recently and like break it down a little bit, that'd be awesome. Uh, do you want me to queue up a recording or? Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about my recent string quartet premiered a couple weeks ago by the American String Quartet. So cool. Yeah, so I'll I'll talk a little bit about the piece itself. So I had come across a painting by Marc Chagall uh, called The Concert, which he had painted in 1957. And this painting depicts a boat leaving Paris, which has three people on it, uh, two of whom are romantic lovers Uh, And the third is the navigator of this boat, who is also playing a musical instrument that's serenading uh, the couple and taking them on a kind of uh, psychedelic journey around the painting, to the various parts of the painting. And so at the time, I was, you know, in discussions with with the American String Quartet about this piece, um, and they wanted the piece to connect in some way to their uh, Beethoven string quartet program. Um, And so I was looking at the painting and I was having a hard time trying to figure out how I was going to tie this into Beethoven. And so I was looking more carefully at the three people in the boat and the two people in this romantic couple looked a lot like Beethoven. Um, Strange as that may sound. but it made me think, what if Beethoven were taking this trip, this psychedelic trip uh, along the Seine and around the painting? Uh, I love that. So that was my starting point for the piece. Again, it's this like connection between two seemingly uh, unrelated ideas, yeah. you know, Chagall and Beethoven. Um, but it was actually my starting point for the piece where I used a quote from uh, Beethoven's String Quartet in C-sharp minor, Opus 131, and altered it uh, rhythmically and and registrally, um, and even harmonically too, and embedded it into my piece uh, in its disguised form. And throughout the various sections of the piece, the quote gets transformed uh, as well um, as I imagine Beethoven <laughs> may have been trans- transformed in his journey uh, yeah. along the Seine. So uh, I can play a little bit of it and then skip around and talk about the various sections. And- yeah, that'd be cool. So the piece is split in a number of sections. So the first section is supposed to depict Paris, you know, a cool, a cool blue Paris at night, uh, from which this boat is departing.
so you get the idea. Then the music builds up as we uh, move closer, uh, as we've departed from Paris and we're now well into our journey on the Seine. And uh, in the top left corner of the painting, there's uh, this section. It's almost as if the painting is, is sliced open and you have bright red in the top left portion with all of these demon creatures, mythical creatures that are playing string instruments. And this music is what's pulling this couple. And it's the force that's, that's moving this boat along the journey. So I'll just skip a little bit. I love then, this section. I, I've listened to all of it, and this is my favorite part. Thank you. Um, so once once they've traveled through that section, then they make their way around the moon, uh, which is kind of the, the anchor piece uh, in the center of this painting, and that's kind of represented uh, by second violin in the midst of these. It's like a harmonics uh, texture. So that's that. And then finally, we get to our last section uh, where the, the first violin has a solo in the highest register. And so we, we get this progression over the course of the piece of mm -hmm. you know low to high register or low to high instruments being featured. Um, so first we heard the cello, then we heard the viola, then second violin and now first violin. And this, has you know some abstract connections to to Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, the last movement with the solo violin oh. high register, but I'll play a little bit of it.
Damn. That wispy violin. Oh my god. Yeah, he did an amazing job. He did okay. Wow. So that's that's generally the piece. I mean I can Oh that was awesome. I mean piece for a long time, but yeah, <laughs> I mean I think generally it's like so helpful, I think especially for non musicians to kind of have something broken down and kind of put in terms of like narrative, which I think you did really well, um, rather than just be like, listen to it and enjoy it because it's culture, you know, it's like, let's break down like the inspiration and what's actually like happening in your mind as like, you're writing it. Um, so I think that's totally the name of the game. Um, what was your favorite part of the, that whole process? Was it writing it and kind of coming up with the idea? Like, I feel like the idea, like the aha moment, it's always really exciting, which I'm personally very drawn to. I really like just trying to critically think and come up with ideas um, or is it the actual like writing of the piece? Is it getting it performed or the rehearsals? Yeah, I think with this particular piece, my favorite part was working with the American String Quartet. I mean, they're a, a phenomenal ensemble and um, this piece was written specifically for them. And I mean, yes, it was for them to perform, but I mean, it was written for their playing. You know, I got to sit in on some of their rehearsals before I had even written my piece. And uh, I was listening to them rehearse other pieces that they were going to perform. And I got to know them. I got to know their playing, how they rehearse uh, you know, their sound. Um, and so I tailored what I did to how they play and how I hear them playing in my memory. And so that that's what I felt made it an even more special process. You know, it was written for people that I really respected. And, and there's such a nice ensemble to work with. You know, they, they once I had handed them the piece, they spent a lot of time working on it um, and really digging deep into it. Uh, you know, they would ask me, oh, do you want vibrato here? Do you want um, a lift here? Do you want, uh, you know, all these nuanced questions about what exactly I wanted them to do, like from an interpreter interpretive standpoint you know in many cases were things that i had not even considered um, right. and it was it was just fabulous to work with them and they did a fantastic job in the concert it's so cool you told me after that they are put it as like part of their rep so like maybe sometimes they'll just perform it in future concerts and like what an honor yeah yeah i'm so excited to see where this piece ends up going um, yeah it's incredible whenever you whenever you perform this piece just let me know yeah so cool. What upcoming projects do you have going on right now? So right now I'm in the middle of writing a piece for Sinfonietta, a chamber orchestra um, uh, for the National Orchestral Institute and Festival. Cool. Uh, I'm going to be a Composition Academy Fellow uh, this summer, um, which I have to, I have to finish this piece by May. So hustling a bit. Um, I'm also finishing up a piece for some colleagues at Manhattan School of Music and some other outside commissions too. But right now I'm focusing on that symphony edit. Um, well, I think the last thing I wanted to just touch on was just where you think the future of classical music is going um, and something I really care about. I'm trying to also kind of ask everyone who I talk to um, on this podcast, like how do we make classical music more equitable kind of going forward? I think the future of classical music is in young people. Um, if we can engage with young audiences, like very young audiences, 
and get them interested in classical music and making classical music relevant. I think part of the problem is that classical music historically has remained in a kind of museum uh, yeah. environment where we're expected to understand and appreciate music as if we were living in a different time. And so I think the way to make it more relevant is to have more new pieces um, be premiered to celebrate new music. Much of new music might not be might not be pleasing to everybody, but um, <laughs> but there's that hope that you'll hear something, you know, out of the thousand pieces that you hear, that one will really resonate with you. And I think that's yeah. the beauty that you never know what you're going to get. So I think if we can engage with young audiences and raise new generations of classical music, whatever classical may be, um, classical music lovers and or at the very basic level uh, appreciators. Um, and this might be done through, you know, through education, I think is the best thing to do. Um, and also combine that with um, new music and have kids be interested in new music and learn that you know, composers aren't all these dead composers from hundreds of years ago. Right. that composers still exist and that we can still write music and enjoy it and enjoy the activity of like putting it all together. I think that's how classical music can thrive in, in our future. Yeah. And ideally also like finding ways to kind of take down some of the barriers to entry as well. But I agree. I think one, another thing I really appreciated about New York youth was the commitment to premiering a new commission every concert cycle like that is a very intentional thing to do especially for a youth symphony like we did not have to do that um but i think that commitment really spoke a lot and even just every cycle also doing readings for like the student composers in the new york youth like composition program like there was a really cool commitment to kind of connecting all the programs together and embracing new music and yeah investing in like the creators of the future of music, which you are incredibly in that group, which is so cool. Like you are the future of classical music. You are the future of music in general, um, because I agree we need more material. And it was cool because the last interview I did was with a friend from a jazz vocal and like musical theater background. And they were saying the same thing, but in a completely different niche of the music world. But they were also like, we need new material um, to represent people of all creeds and to also just keep it going. Like we need less revivals. Um, we can also appreciate the greats and play the greats and all of that, but that can't be it um, if we want to keep going forward. So I think it's so cool that you are a creator and there there's a lot of new stuff to come. It's really exciting. Yeah, I view it an honor to be a composer. You know, we, we we create excuses for people to come together and make music with each other. Like, how cool is that? Yeah, it's like community building in a sense. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time and indulging me. Thank you so much for having me.